words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16 in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But uh, speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We resume uh, these uh, studies in the Epistle to the Ephesians, which we have interrupted for the last three Sunday mornings. And here, in these two verses, we come to the winding up of this great section, which really began at the first verse of the chapter. And therefore, as we come to look at these two verses, which uh, sound at first very complicated and very difficult, it is important that we should bear in mind the context and the background. The basic theme is the, the theme of unity in the church. It's that which he puts explicitly in the third verse, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That is the first great deduction which he draws from the mighty doctrine that he has been laying down in the first three chapters, therefore, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And that's the first respect in which we are to do so, to preserve and guard and protect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he has been giving us reasons for that, you remember, especially in verses 4, 5, and 6. Well, then in verse 7, he takes up this same subject of the unity of the church in terms of the very nature and constitution of the church herself. That is the theme, I say, that begins at verse 7. And what he's really doing in these two verses we're looking at this morning is to wind up that particular consideration of the nature of the Christian church. His object being, let us not forget, not simply to give us uh, an account of the doctrine of the church, but to show us how inevitable this question of unity is if we really do understand as we ought this nature and being of the Christian church. Well, now, we remember that uh, <laughs> he's been doing this all along. He says, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Then he says... This gift of Christ is not merely something that we receive individually, but he has given certain gifts to the church. And these gifts are some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why has he, why has he given these offices and persons to fulfill the offices to the church? Well, he says the answer is for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God 
unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There it is, and we've been looking at it. But then, having said it all, and he really has said it all there, he can't leave it because he's so concerned about it. So he comes back to drive it home in a last word. And this last word is a negative and a positive. He drives it home negatively by saying that we henceforth, from now on, be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness wherein they lie in wait to deceive. Not that. Well, what then? Well, speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, and then follows verse 16 with a final picture of the church as the body of Christ. Very well. Now then, there is the background, and we must, as I say, bear it in mind, because this is really a kind of summing up, stating it all again. Nothing new, in a sense, in what we're going to look at this morning, but he, he reinforces what he's been saying, brings it to a climax and a conclusion, underlines it, emphasizes it, and that is what we must also try to do. Now, we have already considered the first statement, namely speaking the truth in love. He says, these false teachers who mislead and who lie in wait to deceive, there's no love about them, They've got their own end and object in view only. They're not concerned about you, they're concerned about themselves. That is what the scripture always says about false teachers. They're wolves amongst the sheep, predatory, concerned about themselves only. And it has ever been the characteristic of false teachers that, well, says the apostle, you mustn't be like that. And what they preach is a lie. It's error, it's, it's false, it's deceit. You, he says, are to be the exact opposite. You are to speak the truth. And you are to speak the truth in love. Being concerned about one another, anxious to help one another, in order that you may build up one another. Very well, having put it like that, he says, you speak the truth in love. Why? Well, in order that you may grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ. Now, he, you see, has already said even that, where we had it like this, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's it. He's simply saying that again in different words. We grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. We needn't stay with this, therefore, but let me just underline what he does say. Notice his negative again. We are not to be children. Well, what's the opposite of being children? Well, it's to grow up. To grow up and to advance and to develop and to go on. Well, those of us who were here last Sunday morning were considering that in terms of a, a word out of the epistle to the Hebrews. It's uh, something that is emphasized everywhere in the scriptures. As Christians, we are meant to grow, to grow up. There's nothing more tragic than to see somebody remaining in a childish condition, being infantile, though the years are passing. 
Is there anything more tragic than that? Than to see a person who may be in the thirties or the forties with the mentality of a child. Well now that's the sort of thing that can happen to us if we're not careful in the spiritual life. There are some Christians who never seem to grow up. You knew them twenty years ago and you know them now and you really can't see anything different in them. They're still perpetuating the old methods. They've got the same mannerisms. There's no evidence of development and of growth. They've got a false view of Christianity. We are to be no more children, he says, we are to grow up. So that as year passes year, there should be evidence of uh, maturity and development and growth in us. And those who know us can see it. And they say, my word, that man is maturing, he's developing. He was a Christian before, yes, but there's something additional now in everything he says and in all he does. Oh, it's a very sad thing when Christian people don't grow. Grow up, says Paul. Develop. Examine yourselves. We've been trying to do so the last two Sunday mornings. That's why these last two Sunday mornings were so important. The last Sunday of the old year, the first Sunday of the new. Self-examination. I'm almost tempted to repeat a good deal of it because so many of you were not here last Sunday morning because of the rain, I imagine. But I don't want you to escape that. Examine yourselves. You mustn't evade this, and I mustn't allow you to do so. Self-examination is essential, otherwise you'll remain children. But we mustn't remain children, says Paul. We must grow up. We must become men. We mustn't remain as children in any sense. Well, there it is. Work it out for yourselves. Well, then he comes to his positive. And uh, he says that we are to grow up in all things. It's the apostle who says that. Grow up into him in all things. There again, uh, last Sunday morning, I was dealing with the importance of balance in the Christian life. It's no use growing in some respects and not in others. That leads to a monstrosity. If some parts are overdeveloped and others underdeveloped, that's not beautiful. That's lacking in symmetry and in form. That's ugly. No, no, the growth of the Christian is to be symmetrical. It's to be in all things and in every respect. Not only must you develop in your mind and understanding, but your heart and your feeling and your sensibility. Let's test ourselves then, I say. Along those lines and in our conduct and in our behavior, are we growing intellectually? Have we got more knowledge of the truth than we had a year ago? Do we understand the scriptures better? Are we less frequently in trouble and in perplexity about these matters? Do we feel that somehow or another it's all becoming plain to us? Let's take the obvious illustration Take the student, he takes up a subject, he's plunged into the midst of lectures, he understands practically nothing at all. He says, what is all this about? And he feels like giving up, but he's advised to go on. And he just does go on, and he sits and listens, and he doesn't apprehend very much of it. But suddenly, after a few months, he begins to say to himself, oh, I'm beginning to get uh, the hold of this. I'm beginning to understand it. It's beginning to make sense to me. And from there on, 
the thing becomes clearer and clearer to him and he's a master of his subject. Now it's exactly like that in the Christian life. People have often said that to me. They said, you know, when I first began to attend this chapel, I really didn't know exactly what you were talking about. I felt some general spirit, something laid hold upon me, but I didn't know what you were talking about. I couldn't follow, I couldn't understand. I just came on coming and then I gradually began to feel that I was understanding it. It began to open to me. Now that's a sign of growth and of development. And we should go on like that progressively. Doesn't matter how much you knew a year ago. You should know more this morning. Or test it along the other affective side. The side of the feeling and the emotion. Does this wondrous truth of the gospel grip us more than ever? Does it move us more than ever? Or do we say, oh, of course, I'm familiar with that. I've heard all that before. I, I've read my scriptures so often. Ah, it's a terrible thing when the gospel doesn't move us more and more and fill us with an increasing sense of wonder and of amazement and of astonishment. There are far too many Christians, it seems to me, who have done all the feeling in their Christian life when they were first converted. And they look back to that, and it wasn't it wonderful, they say, that's very wrong. We should feel more and more as we go on. And if your emotions are not disturbed more and more, what it really means is that your understanding isn't growing. Because to understand this is of necessity to be, to be moved by it. You can't help it. The one follows as the night the day. The more we know Christ, the more we must love him. The more we know any truth about him, the more it must move us in a very deep and vital sense. And in the same way, we must grow in the matter of our conduct and of our behavior. Grow up into him in all things. Or oh, let me expound what I'm trying to say by quoting the apostle elsewhere. Listen to him in writing to the Corinthians, first epistle in the 14th chapter and the 20th verse. Brethren, he says, be not understanding, be not children in understanding. Howbeit, he says, in malice, be children. But in understanding, be men. Be children in malice. Grow less and less in that respect. Reverse this process. Howbeit, in malice, be ye children. But in understanding, be men. And again, he's already said it in writing to the Romans in that last chapter of verse 19. He says, your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. We ought to remain children as regards evil and even die altogether, but not with regard to that which is good. We are to be wise with respect to that which is good. Very well then. We must no longer be children, but grow up and grow up in everything and in every respect and grow up into him, unto him who is the head, even Christ. What does this mean? Well, this is again, as I say, another way of saying all that he's been saying in verse 13. It means that uh, as individual members and parts of this body, we all grow up into a conformity to the head. It's again this whole question of symmetry and of balance and of proportion. 
In other words, what he's saying is that every part of the body ought to be worthy of the head, ought to correspond to the head. We know what the head is like. The head is even Christ. So that every part of the body and every little portion, it doesn't matter how small or apparently insignificant, should be in conformity, should be worthy. There should be no clash. Oh, you can think of obvious illustrations for yourself. You often find this lack of proportion and of symmetry in nation, in nature. You may see a very beautiful face with ugly hands, if you like, or a beautiful body and ugly legs or something like that. Now, it's the opposite of that, the apostle says, is the ideal, that there should be no clash, as it were, but that the whole body should be perfect. Absolutely, perfectly proportioned, balanced, nothing standing out as a kind of oddity or eccentricity, but everything fitting in together perfectly and in due proportion. Oh, he says, that's the ideal. So let us speak the truth in love as we deal with one another. He's now inside the life of the church uh, so that we shall all be growing up like together, growing up together. At the same rate, if possible, with the same kind of maturity, and so the whole body shall show this delightful uh, proportion and beauty and per per perfection of form, and there shall be no clash as between the body and the various uh, between the head and the various other parts of the body. But I think that there is also one other thing here which is rather important, and that is this that every part of the body should be so developed as to be always ready to respond to him. Not only to conform to him, but to be at his will and at his service. So that when he, the head, desires something, there shall be no hindrance, no let, no restraint in any part of the body. Well, very well, there, I say, is this first statement which he makes. But he continues in verse 16. And it is to this I want to advert most particularly this morning. Because he goes on, you see. Grow up in, a, in all things into him which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplier, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now that is undoubtedly the most complicated thing that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And it's interesting to notice how some of the commentators of the past, some of the fathers in fact in the church, had the temerity even to suggest that he became rather muddled for once and that his heart or something ran, ran away with his head. And that he piled so many phrases upon phrases that he rather forgot what he was saying at the beginning of the sentence. It certainly is uh, one of the most uh, difficult verses on the surface in the whole of Scripture. It's an extremely difficult verse to read. And uh, it is a difficult verse to understand unless you take in your hand the key that the Apostle himself has already provided for us in his previous statements. 
there is no doubt in my mind that what he was really doing was this. He was, as I say, winding up the whole matter. And he was so anxious that no part of it should be missing that he certainly does produce a somewhat involved statement. He adds things in order to make sure that nobody shall forget that particular aspect. Well, what is the, what have we here? Well, what we have really is another of his pictures of the church as the body of Christ. We've had occasion to remark already that this is undoubtedly his favorite picture when he comes to describe the church. But even this picture is inadequate, for we shall notice, even as we look at this particular picture, that there are senses in which he himself goes beyond his picture, because the picture, however good it is, can never convey the full truth. That's the trouble with every illustration. Illustrations are all right, but they're never enough. That's why you have to use several. And the apostle in dealing with the church does use many. The church is the body, the church is a building, the church is the bride, and so on. The church is a great commonwealth. Now that's because no one of them can say everything. And here in this particular picture, though it is the most adequate of them all, there are nevertheless certain difficulties. Now the best plan, it seems to me, is that I look with you at the particular terms first of all, and then look at the whole. Here is a picture again then of the church as the body of Christ. The first thing he says is that the head is Christ. From whom? He's already been saying which is the head, even Christ, from whom? He always starts there. We must always start there. He's already done it in the first chapter where he's talking about the risen Lord and says that God hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. It's repetition, but most wonderful repetition. And we must always start with this, Christ is the head of the church. He is the source of all her life, her energy, her growth, her everything else. And apart from him there is no church and could not be. Christ is the head. Very well, let's go on to consider our position. And here he makes two statements. What he says about us is that we are being fitly joined together. And also, secondly, compacted. Now take this phrase, fitly joined together. What does that mean? Well, very fortunately again, he's already given us the same thing previously in the second chapter, uh, there in verse 21, in whom he says, all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. And at that time you may remember that I pointed out that here he was mixing his metaphors that having started with a building, he turns to the body. Fitly framed together means parts fitted closely to each other. A kind of uh, harmony. It is the very word that he actually uses. It means several parts 
bound together, fitting into one another. That's his first phrase. Now here he's talking about us. The head of the body is Christ. We are members in particular, and these members are articulated. They fit into one another. Everything goes into position, ball and socket. There it is, articulated, fitly framed together, fitly framed together, fitly joined together. All these terms mean exactly the same thing. The idea is of a number of parts not simply bound together anyhow, somehow, but bound together in the amazing way in which the various parts of our bodies are joined together. And this is where one rejoices in a certain amount of knowledge of anatomy. You think of a joint. The thing is so perfect. The, there, as it were, is a kind of cup and into that cup fits this other end, this ball. And the surfaces are smooth so that there's no friction. And everything works easily and smoothly and in a supple manner. That's what he's conveying. And that's how members of the church are to be. And that's how they are to grow up into him in all things. And this is the perfection of the Christian church. Every member being what he's meant to be. Yes, and fitting in with every other member. Preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. No creaking in the joints as it were. No angularities. But everything fitly joined together. But you see, he's not even content with that. He adds another phrase, compacted. And compacted means closely knit. And of course he uses it in order to drive home the point. Brought and held together. That's what compacted means. And uh, it's a term that is often used in a figurative sense to mean a kind of mental unity. Sympathy of understanding. Concord. So you see, he's slightly changing his emphasis uh, from the purely mechanical, uh, which you have in fitly joined together, you have this further notion of minds fitting in together, compacted, closely knit, as is essential, of course, for a true unity, for an organic unity, and for proper working. Well, there is the second thing. Christ is the head, and here are we as the parts, and that is our condition. Fitly framed together, fitly joined together, and compacted. But now we ask the question, how is all this uh, brought into being and how is all this maintained? How can this uh, being joined together and compacted and in the relationship to the head, how is all this brought about and how is it kept going? How is it maintained? Now here we come to the one of the most difficult of his phrases where he says, by that which every joint supplier. And uh, the difficulty there is over the word joint. Because we instinctively think of the word joint in the way that I've already been using it, of this ball and socket, as it were. This uh, fitting in uh, the actual joints. Well, now, the apostle doesn't mean that. He's already dealt with that when he says that we are fitly joined together. So that it would be better to translate the word translated joint by the word band. By every band. 
or if you like, by every connecting link. That's what joint means here. It doesn't mean an actual joint. It means a band, a connecting link. In other words, what he is saying at this point is that these bands not merely unite us together. They do that, but they do something much more important. It is through these bands or joints of connection that the supply of the life and the energy passes for every part. You see, this is really misleading to read which every joint supplies. It rather gives the impression that it is the joint that does the supplying. That isn't so. What he is saying is this, that the supply comes through the joint. The supply comes through the band. So that some would translate it like this, through every joint for supply, or every joint which serves for supply. That's better. In other words, these joints that he's talking about, these bands, are the channels through which the supply of life and nutriment and energy passes to all the various parts of the body. The supply, if you like, communicated through every joint. That's a better way of translating it. So we read, uh, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted through the supply communicated by or through every joint. And uh, take this word supply. This is the most important one. The word the apostle used carries the meaning of an abundant supply. A superabundance. It isn't just enough. No, there's an abundant supply. Oh, I've already quoted it this morning. John puts it in the prologue of his gospel and says, Of his fullness we received, and grace upon grace. Paul has already been saying it. He's talked in the second chapter of the exceeding riches of his grace. He's spoken about the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. He's talked about being filled with all the fullness of God. That's the supply, this abundant supply. And it comes to the various members of the body through these channels or joints of communication. These channels of supply along which it passes. Now that is what he means, therefore, by fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. And then he adds something even to that. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Now, effectual working means operative energy. It's energy that does something. And the measure of every part means the capacity of each part according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Well, this clearly means this. This operative energy, this vital power of which he says there is an abundant supply, passes through the bands of communication to every part. And how much is given to every part? Well, he says, what is given to every part is according to the measure of its capacity. 
Each part in the body doesn't receive the same amount. But each one, he says, does receive all that it needs according to the measure of its capacity. That is the explanation of the effectual working in the measure of every part. I do hope we are catching this idea. This is what he's saying. There is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are we as individual members. We are all to function as the head desires us to do, and we are all fitly joined together, and we are compacted, and all this is held together and kept going by these bands of supply. Then there is this endless supply that comes down, and every single part, it doesn't matter whether it's great or small or medium, it's absolutely full. It gets all that it needs and no more. It isn't all identical. We are not all absolutely the same. No, no, we differ tremendously. But every one of us has got a capacity, and every one of us is going to be filled according to his capacity. Now, you see, I said at the beginning that he's summing up here, that he's repeating. Now, he said all that in verse 7. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. That's it. There are differences in administrations. There are diversities of gifts. There are members of the body that are more important than others, more comely than others. Read 1 Corinthians 12, and there you'll find a detailed exposition of all that. The eye and the hand and the foot and the smelling and the tasting and so on, all these are not equal in importance in that particular sense, but they're all members of the body and they're all equally important in that sense. And what he's saying here is this, that every part is given a full and an abundant supply of the life and the energy so as to enable it to carry out its particular function in a perfect manner. Very well. What is the object of all this? Why is the church so con constituted? Why is the body thus constructed? And he says the object is this. It all makes for the increased Growth of the body. That's what it is for. You see, he's got a kind of parenthesis here. Uh, from whom the whole body, dash, uh, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Another dash, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. In other words, the, the church has been thus constituted in this marvelous manner, in order that it may grow. That's why you've got the joints fitting in. That is why you've got these bands of communication. That's the object of this abundant supply, that all the body may grow. The whole body, you notice he says that, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, etc. It is to promote this growth. And that, of course, can be put in another way by saying, in order that the body may be built up, we've already seen that before. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. And then, lest we forget what he was talking about at the very beginning, he adds his word to the edifying of itself in love. 
because love is the final perfection. There abideth now faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And in this matter of unity, what is more important? If the head is love, the body must be love. We are to conform to the head, and he is love, everlasting, eternal love that became incarnate love, and the body is to correspond to him. So we build up ourselves and we grow together in love. Very well, let me give you another translation of the entire statement. From whom all the body, being closely bound together and constantly being knit together uh, through the bands through which the abundant supply passes of the vital energy which is put forth for the capacity of each part, makes for the increased growth of the body, resulting in the building up of itself in love. That's what he is really saying. Now you notice that here there is indeed something which is very similar to and very reminiscent of the human body. And the apostle, uh, you see, writing nearly 2,000 years ago, seems to have known sufficient about physiology to use this particular illustration. Think of the human body. There is the head containing the brain. Now the important thing is that the whole nervous system of the body comes out originally from that brain and is connected to it. Take the smallest little nerve or nerve tendril in the tip of your fingers, you can trace it all the way back, right to the brain. It goes back into the spinal cord and that in turn sends up its bands that go right up to the brain, the center of control, the highest center of all. Now the apostle is really saying something like that. You see, our bodies are very marvelous in this respect. There is all this articulation that I've been talking about, joint fitting into joint, forearm fitting into arm, arm into the trunk and all the rest of it. Yes, but over and above all that, there are these other bands of communication. The nervous system keeps the whole body one and keeps it together and makes it an organic unity in a way that your ligaments and your joints do not do so. And the same thing can be said, of course, about the blood system, the vascular system. That, again, combines everything together. It all starts in the heart, and it doesn't matter the smallest venule in your fingertip. It can go, you can trace it right back to the heart, and it goes through its various processes. So your nervous system and uh, your vascular system correspond, as it were, to these bands of supply that he's talking about. And this is the remarkable thing, that the energy, the nervous energy with which I move my little finger, rarely comes originally from my brain. I initiate that movement, and I send out energy which passes through, and there I'm unable to do that. Now, that's the kind of idea that the apostle has got here. And to that extent, his picture, I say, is a very perfect one, and is a very wonderful one. And what he is saying is that the supply, the origin of life and energy and power and sustenance and all we need is in the head, which is Christ himself. 
and it passes down to every part of the body. His analogy breaks down in one sense. He says, from whom that the whole body comes out of the head? Well, actually, in physical terms, that isn't true. But you see, that's where no illustration, as I said, is perfect. The body does not develop out of the head. That is not correct. But forget that. That's just the defect of any illustration. But hold on to these other aspects. These bands of communication and the energy and the life that is in the head and that passes through to every part of the body. But you notice this. There is a kind of paradox here. He sounds as if he's contradicting himself and yet he isn't. He says on the one hand that everything comes from the head and yet he has said that every part of the body has got its supply according to its capacity in order that the whole may grow up and develop and edify itself in love. Is there a contradiction? No, there isn't for this reason. The growth of the whole depends in a sense upon the condition of every part. Ultimately, we are all entirely dependent upon the head. He alone is the source of supply and yet it is true to say at the same time that if there is any defect in any part, well then the development of the whole is interrupted and interfered with. And that of course is because of this wonderful interrelationship, this organic unity that obtains between the various parts of the body. Let me give you a simple illustration. You may say what really matters is the condition of my brain. There is my seat of vital nervous energy and of power my thinking and my ultimate ability. And you say, in comparison, what is the significance of a little finger? Well, I'll tell you what the significance of the little finger is. If you suddenly develop an acute infection in the tip of your little finger, if a thorn from a rose bush goes into it, and it becomes acutely infected, it begins to throb and you're getting terrible pain. Yes, but not only that. You yourself become ill. You get a headache. And though you've got your great brain, you can't use it. You can't think. The pain, the disease in the little finger puts a kind of paralysis, as it were, upon the head. Now, that's an illustration. Don't press it too far. But there is great truth in the illustration. It's what the apostle is saying. Christ, for the purposes of the church, is the head. He's not bound to the church. And yet there is a sense in which a kind of limit is placed even upon him by the failure of the church. Thank God, not in an ultimate sense. Yes, but it is true in a temporary sense. So that the apostle says that if the whole body is to grow and to develop and to build itself up in love, well, then it is very important that every particular part should be filled up to its capacity with this vital life and energy, and then as the whole is perfect, the whole grows and develops in its maturity. So you see that every single member of the church is of most vital importance. Well, I leave it at that this morning. It's not surprising, is it, that the apostle piled term upon term? He was concerned to show the glory of the church. The glory of our position as individual members of the church. 
Fancy being in such a body. Fancy belonging to the head. Fancy receiving the supply from him. Uh, have you received up to your capacity? Are you fulfilling your function? Are you brimming and teeming and tingling with life? Is this vital energy of Christ the head in you, whatever you are, whatever your place in the church this morning? That's our privilege. And then think of your responsibility. Your responsibility as a member of this body. Are you causing pain and trouble in other parts of the body? By being diseased? By being sinful or failing? Or being lethargic? These are the questions that inevitably arise. Ah, the Apostle's great appeal is this. Let's no longer be children. Let's no longer remain undeveloped. But let us all grow up in everything. And to him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself. In love. There is no value in intellectual knowledge unless it finally leads to love. There is no value in any emotion unless it leads to love. Our works are useless if they do not produce this love, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity. What's the value of it? What's the value of anything? So we build up ourselves in 